It is difficult to find happiness within oneself, but it is impossible to find it anywhere else. Arthur Schopenhauer Welcome everybody to the podcast, Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends. I'm Credo, and my co-host is Glaucon. We both invite you to take historical ideas within their context along with us, examine the thinkers and the timeless ideas they provide to us. These ideas are as relevant today as they were back then. It's our hope and our belief that in doing so would bring us closer to the truth. Just note that the views expressed by the host do not in any way reflect the personal views of the hosts themselves. All right, let's do this. All right, so tonight we're going to talk about the Tao Te Ching. And it's always funny when people try to talk about the Tao Te Ching because in the very first poem of the Tao Te Ching, the very first line of the Tao Te Ching, they say the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. So, you know, as soon as you start talking about the Tao and really as soon as you try to capture this book, you kind of start to lose the book and you start to lose your way, as it were. And that is part of the sort of puzzle of Taoism and the nature of the Tao. A couple things we can say. One is that this book was written by Lao Tzu. We'll say a little bit more about Lao Tzu in a minute. But it was written about the same time that Plato and Socrates were around, which is a, an interesting thing. You know, so there were lots of places in the world around this time period where there was just some brilliant, powerful thinking happening and very powerful people were around and engaged in bringing us powerful philosophical and spiritual ideas. And the Tao Te Ching is an interesting text, like many texts, and I think more so than most texts that are like this, the Tao Te Ching is kind of a kaleidoscopic text. And what I mean by that is that when you look at it or try to understand it, the way in which you enter into the text affects the way in which you comprehend it. And when you enter into it in a different way, it changes. And it changes without damaging its consistency or coherence throughout. And the ability for the text to have that quality is remarkable and, in a sense, not easily explained, <laughs> really, you know. Um, it is a book like The Republic in many ways, because it's a book about the ideal ruler. It's also a book about how to be uh, a worker among workers or a person among persons, uh, just to fit in. And, and this is also reminiscent of the Republic and Socrates, because if you remember, Socrates says that the worst thing you can be is a busybody, someone that's in everybody else's business. And in the Tao Te Ching, they're certainly not advocating anything like being a busybody. And a lot of times people, when they think about the Tao Te Ching, they think, or Taoism in general, they think, oh, it's all about going with the flow, taking it easy. And there's something right about that, but it really doesn't capture the nature of Taoism and the idea of kind of non-action that's kind of discussed in the Tao Te Ching. And a lot of times, the criticism 
of Western thinkers about the Tao Te Ching is that it advocates passivity or a life of yielding or something like we were just saying, going with the flow. But I really think that is a misplaced criticism because I don't think that's what the Tao Te Ching is actually about or advocating at the end of the day. But we'll, we'll have to talk about that as we go here. The Tao Te Ching is named Tao, which means way, De, which means virtue, and Jing, which means classic. So we have Tao Te Jing. And it can kind of be translated in a variety of ways. It can be translated as the way of virtue, or the path of virtue, or there are multiple different translations. And if we look at the characters, that can kind of give us some insight into this name, right? So the first character, Dao, if you look at the character itself, the border, the left and bottom border of the character is bordered by an upraised ankle. So the, the line itself looks like an upraised foot, like a foot that's about to begin on a journey. And then on top of that, we have first, the very top, we have two hash marks and those hash marks represent yin and yang and then we have a single line which represents one the one and then we have an, a character for the eye which is in this case a horizontal representation of the eye but it's still the eye and so the character for Tao or the way is really you're on a journey with an eye on the one and yin and yang in the mix the opposites are in the mix so this is a pretty interesting idea, just the idea of being on the path or on the way. And this is a common word in Asian languages, right? Because you have the idea of kendo. Kendo in Japan is the way of the sword, right? So this is a very common word. But here we're talking about the way of virtue. And the character for virtue here, duh, if we look at the character for virtue, on the left-hand side, there's the radical for two people next to each other. And two people next to each other means a variety of things. One thing it means is duty or following. Another thing it can mean is brotherly love. And then when we look to the right of the character, the top part on the right is a cross, which is the number 10. And the number 10 is a representation of perfection and is often related to the gods. And we have another eye underneath that. So we have an idea of duty or following or brotherly love with an eye on perfection. And then underneath the eye, we have the heart. So we have duty, following, brotherly love with an eye on perfection and a heart. Pretty powerful idea of virtue. And I would say not very different from the idea of virtue that Plato or Socrates was advocating at the end of the day, or really a reasonable idea of virtue, an idea that I think captures it pretty well. And then the last character, Jing, is classic, right? And so this is one of the Chinese classics. And sometimes it's been called the classic of 5,000 characters or the 5,000 character classic. So that's just a little bit about the name. And then we can say a little bit more about Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu, the author of the Tao Te Ching, is thought to have been an archive keeper 
for the emperor, and he looked at society and was sickened by society and sickened to his heart and decided that he really couldn't participate in it anymore. He couldn't be part of it. And so he rode off to leave the kingdom. And while he was exiting through one of the gates, the gatekeeper stopped him and said, aren't you the famous Lao Tzu? And he said, yes. And he said, what's happening? And he said, well, I'm leaving. I'm leaving, I'm departing to the West. And the gatekeeper said, before you leave, won't you write down what you know? And so Lao Tzu wrote down his wisdom in a series of 81 poems, which is the Tao Te Ching. That's just one of the myths about the origin of this book. But really, the actual and true origin of this book is lost in the mist of time. And even Lao Tzu himself really is an ethereal character. The name Lao Tzu can be translated as old master. It can also be translated, interestingly, as old boy or ancient boy. And this is fitting for Taoism because sometimes they th say things like, you know, if you're an oak tree, if you're stiff and hard, you'll be broken by the wind. But if you're supple and soft, you'll bend with the wind. And that supple and soft and yielding things are students of youth and hard and inflexible things are students of death. And so it is interesting that he's kind of thought of as the ancient boy. You know, one interesting thing that kind of came to mind as you were talking about his name was that old master and old boy or ancient boy, master boy, those are actually opposites, which is right on par for Taoism and, and the Tao, which always speaks to Again, opposites and the, the yin and the yang and all that. And speaking of, how about you lead us in with the first of the 81 poems? Yeah, absolutely. I will do that. So the very first poem starts out. It says, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. Free from desire you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestations. Yet mystery and manifestations arise from the same source. The source is called darkness. Darkness within darkness, the gateway to all understanding. So extremely cryptic, extremely subtle, and puzzling right from the get-go. Number one, the first, very first poem. And I think Stephen Mitchell says it's very interesting that a book that begins by claiming that the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao, then goes on with 10,000 words to tell you about it. And it's like you were saying, the 5,000 character classic, right? So it, it is very interesting, right? That, that there are a lot of things to be said about something that you can't say anything about, but it has to be done in a certain way. It has to be done in a particular way. And we get a real taste of that with this first poem, because we get things like, we can kind of get some of the idea, right? So one way to think about this is, you know, there's this philosophical kind of joke about when you try to analytically investigate certain things, you kind of lose your way. And so an example is a person who's good at hitting a baseball with a bat. If you ask them to explain and 
describe exactly how it is they're doing it, they'll often kind of talk themselves out of their ability to be able to do it. So they lose some part of their skill by kind of outlining their skill and delineating their skill. And another way to think about this is that there's a story about, you know, the person who asks the centipede or the millipede, you know, how is it that you're able to coordinate all your legs in this way? I mean, can you, can you tell me how you do this? And then as soon as you ask the centipede or the millipede how it is that he's able to coordinate his legs moving that way, he's no longer able to move. Right? That, I think, is similar part of what the idea is that the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. Because as soon as you delineate something, as soon as you try to corner it and analyze, investigate, and make clear an idea, you begin to put limitations on it. And if it's something that runs deeper than that, you've now lost it. You're no longer actually talking about it, right? And if we go on to the next part, that the unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. And so we know that in Taoism, you start with the Tao, which is kind of just this darkness within darkness idea, or everything and nothing. And then you get this arising of opposites. So yin and yang are born from the Tao. And so once yin and yang are born, then you have further divisions and you get the five elements, metal, water, wood, fire, and earth. And then that goes back into metal again. So metal, water, wood, fire, and earth. And then after that, you get the eight trigrams. You have fire and water, heaven and earth, mountain, wind, thunder, and lake. And you get eight divisions. And so after that, you get the 10,000 things. And so now all the things in the universe are manifest, but they were always there in a sense, but their being kind of discrete particular things is its origin is in the kind of recognition of them as being discrete particular things. And here they're saying it's in, in the naming of them, right? In the sort of like picking them out as something discrete. And one way to think about this, you know, and obviously now we're doing exactly what they told us not to do. We're talking about it. But one, one thing we can say is that, you know, when we, when we were thinking about previous episodes, we were talking about human beings being the point in the universe where the universe is conscious of itself. And we don't think of ourselves that way. We think of ourselves as these discrete things that are separate from the universe. We're kind of like in the universe. We're enjoying the universe. We're participating in the universe in some sense, but we're not the universe, but actually we are the universe. So we don't recognize our real nature. We think of ourselves as separate. We think of ourselves as discrete. And we do that with lots of things. We think of a bottle of Coca-Cola as discrete from the rest of the universe, or a car, or a house, or another person. So I think that's part of what they're talking about here. And then I really like this idea of the source is called darkness. And then right after that, Lao Tzu says, darkness within darkness the gateway to all understanding. So first of all, it's obscure, but then it's obscurity within obscurity. <laughs> and that obscurity within obscurity, that is the gateway to all understanding, right? So some pretty interesting ideas there. Any thoughts? Yeah, a few things come to mind. I mean, one, to also comment on our ability to make everything into discrete things 
obviously in some ways that gives us distance from the universe right and this is something that i really pulled out of reading through the Tao is that you know it has a really nice quality where it makes you force yourself to see yourself as part of the universe and not apart from the universe right and so our ability to see ourselves as distinct has allowed us to you know cut down some of the largest trees on earth to drill into the the largest holes to take its resources to exploit it and in many ways all for our own earthly desires i mean one thing that speaking about earthly desires and non-earthly desires and all of that the one thing that really stood out to me obviously i think the first one is quite possibly the deepest of all the chapters um, but it explains this really interesting idea that we've went over many times before which in many ways is like as long as humans as we're trying to you know with our own limitations as we're trying to describe something that is bigger than ourselves i.e kind of like the theory of forms that is outside of ourselves but also within ourselves that we have you know the ability to reach it but it's not contained within us right this kind of thing that we cannot actually describe it right that we fall short and that you know obviously i hope we get to wittgenstein at some point but that's also dealing with like language and everything but this is this i think more than anything is just fundamental in understanding how someone should approach it and that it's a lifestyle and that it's not a definition and that you know if one person could define it that means one person could take it you know and it's not someone's to take it's all ours to share and i, I just take so many things away from the dow that i think are just i mean it's you really can't stop talking about it it is really amazing and what i think about when i read number one which is funny, right, is that I think about the Republic and when they ask Socrates to tell them what a healthy state is. And he says, oh, well, you know, it would just be people, you know, living a very simple life and singing praises to the gods, drinking homemade wine in moderation, eating loaves and cakes on, served on leaves, you know, and sleeping <laughs> on mats of reeds and living this kind of childlike, playful lifestyle, very close to the land. And as he says, right, keeping an eye on poverty and war and wanting to kind of keep everything in check. And at the same time, leading a very simple and natural life. And part of the mystery of things, and we talked about this in the Republic, is that humans have this kind of innate desire to want to return to this very natural bucolic close to the land simple life and at the same time we're caught up in desire right and that's also something they talk about in the Tao Te Ching right and uh, that'll be coming up in a couple of the other poems we talk about that's right and speaking of the other poems I would like to turn us to 54 so it says, what is firmly established cannot be uprooted. What is firmly grasped cannot slip away. It will be honored from generation to generation. Cultivate virtue in yourself, and virtue will be real. Cultivate it in the family, and virtue will be abound. Cultivate it in the village, and virtue will grow. Cultivate it in the nation, and virtue will be abundant. Cultivate it in the universe, and virtue will be everywhere. Therefore, look at the body as the body. Look at the family as family. Look at the village as village. Look at the nation as nation. Look at the universe as universe. How do I know the universe is like this? By looking. 
And so this stood out to me as a really powerful passage, especially in such divisive times as unfortunately we can find ourselves in. You know, sometimes you have to back up and say we're just a spinning rock in outer space held together by rules we don't really understand. But, you know, at the same time, there is harmony. And we mentioned harmony in the last episode as well, how it can be found in so many individual human creations, as well as natural things, as well as between humans themselves. And, you know, at its most basic, it puts forth this declaration that you can see the Tao of others through yourself and of others' families through your family and other communities through your community, which brings me to this point of unity and like-mindedness in the world in general. As we've spoken about on a number of occasions outside this podcast, it's quite impressive how many parts of the world have had the same idea organically without contact and how Homo sapiens have had essentially the same intelligence now for over 200,000 years, yet we keep, you know, encountering these same problems throughout history. And it's not even surprising. And it's also not surprising that we could feel the words of texts from, you know, Lao Tzu or from Socrates, like they're speaking directly towards us, despite being quite possibly the most distant contact that we could ever have on Earth with another civilized being. I mean, we can't really take away from the fact that this is literally some of the oldest civilizations that we would ever have contact with, you know, literally more than 2000 years ago, right? And being able to have them speak directly to us, is, it's just, it's incredible. And so I, I think, again, not just chronological unity, I think there's unity cross-cultural, cross-religions, cross so many things. And I do think that in finding unity outside, you've got to find it within you. And then this chapter ends by telling us to just observe the world with the world. And how do we know what the world is? Well, you just look at it, right? And this is just another part of the Tao. It's like everything else. And if we can have connection, unity among us and within us, we can recognize it all around us. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I just love the ending idea, right? How do we know? Well, just take a look at it. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's awesome, right? And that's kind of related to our, I think, our second podcast when we're talking about moral relativism and this idea that you can be in a situation with other human beings that you don't share a language with, you don't share customs with, you don't share a religion with, but you can look in their eyes and you can understand that you're both human beings and you can understand the moral world, really. You can make sense of the moral world. And how is it that you understand that? Well, just by understanding it. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not as hard as people like to think it is. It's not as confusing and complicated as people like to think it is. I mean, what's funny about the moral relativism stuff is that it's really kind of a window into this because, you know, people, moral relativists will claim that it's super important to be moral relativists and it's really, really important to do this because that's what a virtuous person should do. And if they just stepped back and took a look at that, they'd realize that, oh, wait a second, I'm claiming this is a virtuous thing here. And so I'm participating in virtue now. And, and that's, I think, similar, right, to this idea in that number 54. And also this idea that, as we saw in the Republic, right, that there's this weird way in which it is true in one of us, it's true in a family, it's true in a village, it's true in a society, and it's true potentially, right, through the universe. And we saw that when we talked about uh, the symposium and how 
the nature of love transcends just the relation between people. It's also about my own personal health and also about the celestial workings of the heavens or something like that, right? So similar ideas, <laughs> similar ideas. For sure. I mean, it's interesting you bring up the symposium as well, because, you know, obviously we went over that it can be sometimes seen as a subversive text or a text that can rub certain individuals the wrong way or it can be controversial. But, you know, if you think about it, if you looked for virtue within your own relationship, for example, you would have no problem with relationships that were, for example, not opposite sex or uh, different than yours, right? I mean, I'm just thinking about like, if you were to really look at what you have and then you see that love can be between any two people or whatever, right? Or that you can see that kind of family can exist in more models than just one, right? Like there are just so many ways, which I just feel that just through this one idea, it could solve a lot of our problems. And, and again, this is all about if you see virtue everywhere around you, virtue will be all around you. And this is just so, to me, it's just mind blowing. It's like, wow, it's really true. If you really start looking at virtue within, you know, yourself, you do see other people at, like you kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's like a Marcus Aurelius had once said that, you know, no one does anything bad intentionally. It's kind of a similar idea, but, uh, you know, I just think that, that there's just so much here to making this world a better place. No, absolutely. Great points. So number 15 is one I'd like to look at. This has always been one of my most favorite poems in the Tao Te Ching. Just uh, incredible. So it starts off, it says, The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an iced over stream. Alert as a warrior in enemy territory, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the action is right and arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment, not seeking, not expecting. She is present and can welcome all things. So I love that poem. And it goes right back kind of to number one, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. And then it gives us this great four lines in the beginning. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. And so here we get this Chinese recognition of the ancient thinkers and ancient thought, which we kind of talked about just a minute ago about how profound it is to be able to look at these ancient thinkers and realize the depth of wisdom they have and how applicable it is to our lives in this modern frenetic world. And so here he says, the ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. There is something profound and subtle about these people. We can't actually express it because we don't have it. We can see it. We recognize it, and the best we can really do is describe their appearance. And this is kind of like we're just able to kind of outline the outer husk of their nature. We're not able to actually penetrate it. We're not able to really express it in any deeper way than that. And I just love this because there's something really right about this. You know, with when you meet someone that's really wise and profound, it's obviously not going to be something you're going to be able to express because you don't have that wisdom and profundity. You know? <laughs> so you're going to be able to maybe talk about it a little bit or like express, you know, some things about this person or about 
this thing in nature or reality, but you're not really going to be able to get at the essence of it. And then we get this great story about different ways of thinking about it, right? They were careful as someone crossing an ice over stream. They were alert like warriors in enemy territory. They were courteous like guests, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, and clear as a glass of water. So here we get this kind of like description of their appearance, which they told us they would give us. And then they give us this kind of like idea of how to achieve it. How do you achieve this? And they say, do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? So here, do you have the ability to be still and wait for your mind to settle down? And this sounds like Socrates at the edge of the campfire, looking out into the valley, 24 hours without moving, while everyone else is attending to the fire and resting and eating and just looking out into the distance and waiting for the mud to settle. Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? So here, they're not saying go with the flow. They're saying remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself. So you have to be moving with the universe. You have to be in sync with the good, in sync with what is appropriate. So sometimes they say in the West, his heart is in the right place. And that means that you're being appropriate. You're relating to something in the right way. And that's kind of what they're talking about here. And then it goes on to say, after they've talked about how to achieve it, they say, the master doesn't seek fulfillment. Not seeking, not expecting. She is present and can welcome all things. So if you really think about it, you know, in social life and at work, it's often the case that we're seeking and expecting all the time. And so we're preoccupied and fully occupied with our own selves. And in that kind of a state, we really aren't able to be present for other people. And we really aren't able to be available for what life has to offer because we're so preoccupied with our own concepts of what we're seeking and expecting. We miss the forest for the trees, as it were. So I, I really like 15, but all of these are great. I mean, yeah, this one does hit different. You know, I, I like how you also compared it to the work life that so many struggle with and appropriately so in the world that we call civilization. It's so fitting as, you know, Lao Tzu is basically <laughs> leaving civilization, you know, dropping this token, kind of telling us in advance. But I think that this one, not only does it leave remnants of number one all throughout this, where it's it, it could be kind of vague, right? But at the same time, I think it's extremely instructive. And I think that if someone, including myself, you know, this is a personal critique, one way to really improve my way in which I relate to things, in which I do things to be a more person at peace, you know, someone who is more clear as a glass of water, as it may be, this, I think, is how to do it. And I mean, do you have the patience to wait? I think that that just speaks so many volumes in, in the world that we live in today. I just, you know, don't tattoo it because then it's not the Tao anymore. But this is <laughs> this is really, really good, right? I mean, this is wonderful. And, and, you know, speaking of, I would like to read us number 29. And this one to me, I am choosing this one because I think it's something that, again, I really took away in looking at the Tao, which is our place within the earth within the universe within society within wherever we are so it says do you think that you can take over the universe and improve it i do not believe it can be done 
the universe is sacred. You cannot improve it. If you try to change it, you will ruin it. If you try to hold it, you will lose it. Sometimes things are ahead, and sometimes they are behind. Sometimes breathing is hard, and sometimes it comes easily. Sometimes there is strength, and sometimes there is weakness. Sometimes one is up, and sometimes down. Therefore, the sage avoids extremes, excesses, and complacency. So again, this chapter kind of reminds me that it's useless to try and control the world because the world can't be controlled. And at its most basic, it seems kind of redundant and of little importance. But I think that if we back up just for a second and see how applicable this is to so many things, it reminds us to take advantage of the moment, to embrace the way things are, and not change it because we think we know what's best for it. And in this moment, if you can achieve that, I think you could achieve a certain stillness that the universe kind of needs from its people. I mean, you know, sometimes I think about if the universe could talk or if the earth could talk about all the things that we have done. I mean, think about all the satellites we've sent into space and all that. I mean, like if it could actually talk about like how much this is actually bothering it, you know, we never take into account even oil drilling and all of that. I mean, what if the ground could talk about what it's felt like? I remember John Muir, he kind of commented that you know, these trees in California, obviously, he was very close to a California wildlife and natural parks, particularly Yosemite. But he said, you know, these trees, they've lived for hundreds, if not thousands of years, they've survived droughts and floods and you know, all sorts of natural disasters, but they can't last a minute with man, right? As long as money can be made, they'll always fall because they can't even run. They can't go anywhere. And again, it just kind of reminds me of also the, the previous one as well uh, that I had read, but just this connectedness, I think, to the world and this respect for everything. Because the Tao is all about balance. You know, everything has its place and leaders, followers, cold things, hot things, strong things, weak things. But I do think that for this sort of unity to occur, I think that staying within your proper place is so important. And that's actually how you open this by saying there's this yielded factor. And again, it's not necessarily yielded. It could just be being appropriate. No, absolutely. Definitely great points. I, I remember there's a scene in the, the Great Outdoors, a movie with John Candy and Dan Aykroyd. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but they're out in nature. They're out in the Great Outdoors and they're looking out at this like vast forest. And Dan Aykroyd asks John Candy, hey, what do you see? What do you see? And John Candy says, I don't know, trees? And Dan Aykroyd says, trees? What? A man of no vision. Paper mills, as far as the eye can see. <laughs> so, you know, and it's just, it's one of these things, right? It's where, and this goes back to lots of things we've talked about, actually, about manipulation of the environment, how human beings are the animal on this planet that has the ability to manipulate the environment, right? And so we can bend the environment to our needs. We all live in houses, we all have heaters, we all have stoves, we have toilets with running water, we have hot water. And these are luxuries that we're afforded in America. They're certainly not things that everyone on the planet has, but they are an example of the way in which we've bent this world to our needs, you know. I live in a cold place, I live in Alaska, and it's a place where you're not going to be doing very well if you don't manipulate the environment. And it's the same with like Dallas, Texas or Las Vegas, you know, people aren't going to be living there if they don't manipulate the environment, at least not well, at least not easily. And at the same time, right, we go back to what we were just saying a minute ago with Socrates and this idea of the bucolic simple life. 
and the idea that we often see in Native American and, and indigenous traditions that humans need to be better stewards of their environment and live more at one with nature. And whether or not that is a reasonable generality to make of Native Americans and indigenous people is another question. <laughs> we can leave that aside for now. But it is certainly the case that there have been people throughout time that have wanted to live more at one with nature. And as Socrates said, not taking more than we need, really, and not wanting to live a life of luxury and ease at the expense of future generations and really our own, our own safety, ultimately. That was well put. I mean, in some ways, when I'm reading this, it's almost like my conscience is like, you know, this is like a wake up call for society admits, you know, all the horrible climate things we've been seeing just within the past five years. You know, I mean, you see the flooding across Europe, the droughts, you know, in India and Pakistan. The, I mean, it's just unreal. And the, of course, the wildfires in the West, Western Americas. So on to better things. Would you happen to have another poem or two that you could read for us? Yep. I have one left that I want to talk about tonight. We could just go on and really but maybe we can close with this last poem. The gentlest thing in the world overcomes the hardest thing in the world. That which has no substance enters where there is no space. This shows the value of non-action. Teaching without words, performing without actions. This is the master's way. So a couple things to say here, a few ideas. One idea is this thing that someone showed me one time about Taoism and a way to express it, and that is shaking hands. If someone tries to squeeze your hand and shake your hand really hard, the usual reaction is that you try to shake their hand hard back. And when you do that, you've created now this opposition. And by doing that, by opposing this force in that way, you've now kind of set the situation up where you have this like battle going on. And then if you're stronger than the other person, great. If they're stronger than you, then that's not going to be great. The other option, though, <laughs> this is super interesting, right? The other option is to not respond by shaking their hand hard. So you just shake their hand and they start shaking your hand really hard and you just continue to shake their hand normally. Then all of a sudden that person feels really weird because they're doing this really like ridiculous thing. They're acting in this like overt and stupid way. And they realize it and anyone seeing it realizes it. And so the, it really turns things around and causes that person to kind of be the fool in a sense, right? And so that's an, a way of expressing this idea. Another way of thinking about this is if there is an altercation or an argument with another person, if you argue back vociferously or you try to return a harm or the harm, then you've justified that person's actions, right? So if, if someone is behaving in an inappropriate way and then you respond by matching them, then you've kind of justified their inappropriate behavior because you're behaving just as they are. And so, and if you don't do that, it reveals the inappropriateness of their behavior in a very drastic and profound way. So that's one way that we can think of with this inaction stuff. Another way to think about it, and this is mentioned in other places in the Tao Te Ching, has to do with leadership 
And this can be like managing people in a company, right? So if you're managing people in a company or an agency or a firm or whatever it is, one way to manage people is to tell them how to do things and make sure that they follow the orders and get it done. And if people don't do what you say, you hold them accountable, you fire a few people, people get in line and they do what you say, and then things get done. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to encourage people to do something and set things up so that they accomplish it and then have those people feel that they were the ones that were responsible for accomplishing it. And by doing that, you create a much better sense of morale and you cause people to feel like they're the authors of their own actions and so forth. And you would do that and you yourself as the leader in quotation marks, would not take any responsibility for what's happened. You would allow the people that are working under you to take responsibility for it and say, hey, look what we've achieved. And so that that's a very Taoist idea also. And so those, I think, are two things that are kind of captured by number 43 here. I think that's all really true. I think it is much like the rest of the Tao, extremely applicable. I was even thinking about parenting, that the whole idea of not only not using physical punishment on children as they can sometimes either fight back or turn to rebellious ways, but, you know, doing other instructive things and doing things that shows accomplishment, right, on their part. I just find these ideas just, um, this one in particular, just really applicable in many ways that, again, would start to cultivate virtue all around you almost kind of how we started with and i just think that again to me this is a wake-up call to the world something that i think everyone could benefit from and it's so interesting how if we could just take this for a second how interesting the eastern philosophy at least in this point is very not only just collective but it's also somewhat vague somewhat like a collective call to action whereas the western philosophy much of what we've been talking about has been very specific in many ways on what the good is or what virtue is or you know that kind of thing so i I just think that that's really interesting no absolutely it is interesting it is very very interesting and it, it is very interesting that there's this idea of looking into the past to find wisdom and insight there's this idea that you're not going to be easily able to replicate it so you've you've got to cultivate motivation and the desire to achieve these things And at the same time, you don't necessarily know what it is you're setting out to achieve. In a clear sense, you've got some idea, but you haven't figured it out yet. And I mean, that's actually appropriate if you don't know what what it is you're looking for. (laughs) If you already knew what it was you were looking for, you wouldn't be looking for it. You know, and that's like we were talking about with the lover and the beloved before. But it is super interesting. So we began our discussion of the Tao Te Ching as a way of opening up into Chinese philosophy and Asian philosophy, Eastern philosophy in general. And it is not only shown for the interesting parallels with Socratic thought and Platonic philosophy, as we kind of alluded to, and we've discussed many times on the show, but it's also shown for its standalone value. You know, it should be noted that Eastern and Western thought, although different in many ways, also have striking similarities that can tell us a lot about ourselves and our place in the world. And 
ways that we can be better, ways that are, you know, if you want to use the word universal. And as mentioned, the DAO cannot be defined, and to define it would be to destroy it, so or to lose it. And so although we cannot define it, we can summarize and discuss some of its teachings and its applicability. Although it's over 80 chapters, and we covered five today, we learned that the essence and the fundamental nature of the DAO is to be one who you know, knows their place, someone who is fluid, someone who is open to being the role that they need to be. We also heard calls for unity, calls for protection of the environment, the cultivation of virtue wherever we go, in ourselves, our families, communities, in the universe itself. We also looked at the idea of qualities it would need or it would take to be a great Dao master and how it's unsurprising that the balance or the striking in the middle is the best way to succeed, which also goes back to our ideas of Aristotle and the mean. I guess I would just comment that although the book is only 5,000 characters, which might sound like a lot at first, but by both Chinese standards and I guess general standards, 5,000 characters is not that much, although it's broken up into 81 chapters, so those are quite a few chapters. But this shouldn't be understood or interpreted as a simple book. It's actually extremely complex, quite possibly more complex than can even be explained. And the ancient written style that it's written in, so classical Chinese, really showcases language in a really interesting way. So it has few grammatic particles. Um, it also has no mood. It has no singular or plural articles. There is no tense. It has no person involved. And maybe the most interesting thing is that on its original writing, it didn't even have punctuation. And so it was often unclear where one sentence ended and the other began, right? And so it was just really, really interesting. And then to mix in a little bit more forced reflection, it's deliberately vague and ambiguous, which forces you to not only easily kind of memorize or remember parts of this, because it does kind of stick with you in that way, but it also forces you to reconcile the contradictions within it, which I think are just really cool calls to action upon yourself to making yourself better. This kind of embedded within it that we haven't necessarily come across in such a unresolved way. Of course, we talked about unresolved issues in Socrates, uh, but I do think that this one is openly and deliberately unresolved, which I think is just interesting. So here is a question we can follow up with to round out our discussion, maybe spark some additional searches for truth. So just in the context of the Tao, how can non-being be the source of being? Well, that's easy to answer. Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think, you know, it's interesting because in martial arts, there's this posture called Wu Wei, which is like everything and nothing. And, you know, I, I met this old Taoist master once when I was young, when I was a young person, I was in my early twenties, maybe like 21. And I met this guy and he was like 80 something years old. And, and, uh, he said the, the Tao, the Tao is nothing. And I said, and everything. <laughs> and he said, he said, the Tao is meaningless. And I said, and completely meaningful, you know, and uh, it was just a funny interaction. I'll never forget it. But the, the thing is, right, is that when we think about the nature of existence, you know, you go out on a hike and you get out into some real wilderness, there's a certain kind of feeling that you get in your chest and it comes from the mountains, it comes from the trees, it comes from the ocean. And that feeling is a kind of feeling 
of, I think, part of that feeling is a feeling that, you know, it's just like the name says, it's, it's wilderness, it's wild. And it's not so clear that it's a place that we feel easily at home, right? We don't feel easily at home. So there's this kind of intensity of nature. So we're kind of alienated from it. And at the same time, we're deeply drawn to it. And we feel this sense of kind of being empowered when we're in nature in that way. And I think that that kind of contradiction of like being alienated from it and being empowered by it, being drawn to it and being repulsed from it, that's kind of like that idea of being and non-being. And, you know, that is ultimately a kind of thing that's always always around when we think about existence. You know, what is existence itself? Is existence itself something or is it nothing? You know, and I think that's part of that, that question, but it, it's definitely not something that we're going to be able to easily answer, you know, and it's funny too. It's, I was talking about number 15 with a friend of mine just yesterday and he said, well, well maybe what they mean is something like this. And I said, well, if that's what they meant, they would have said that. And, uh, <laughs> and they don't say that. They give you this other thing. And so I think, you know, there isn't any kind of quick answer to a question like that. But I think it does get at something about the way in which life can be kind of full and a place where we feel at home and a place where we feel at peace. It can also be a place where we feel terrorized and alienated and hopeless. So I think existence and human beings in the world experience both of these things, emptiness and fullness. And I, I think that that might be part of it. But it, yeah, it's an excellent question. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you gave us those comparisons. I mean, sometimes maybe that is one of the better ways to try and understand this is how does it apply and what are some comparisons you can make within the world around you to make sense of it? And, you know, we hope that this inspired you in your search for truth. And we really look forward to providing more content to you all as we begin branching outward and onward onto new things. And as always, we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends. <laughs>